About 10 years ago, at lunch here in the yeshiva in the Charochel, I was speaking with my good friend, my former Chavrusa, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, probably more well known to you guys as the now president of OIU. But he and I were both learning here at the time, and we were schmoozing, and I forget exactly the context of the conversation, but somehow between the two of us, we were discussing who were the leading rabbinic figures in the world. We weren't discussing who was the biggest gadol, who's the greatest lamdan or posek. That's like a different kind of yeshiva shabbatala. But this was a different kind of batala. We were talking about who, as a public intellectual, as an orator, as an ability to impact people. And we mentioned all sorts of names, all of whom, great rabbanim, great scholars, talented speakers, but certainly throughout the conversation, one thing was absolutely clear. Rabbi Sachs was number one, and whoever was number two wasn't even close. When I heard of his passing this Matzei Shabbos, I was reminded of that story and that conversation. Because this really is the magnitude of the loss for the Jewish people. And if anything, the impact that he had grew over the last 10 years. And he probably had, as was already alluded to, an even greater impact after he retired from being chief rabbi than he had in the 22 years that he was chief rabbi. And therefore, what I'd like to do is share with you a few ideas from Rabbi Sachs's writings, from his speeches, and specifically picking a few ideas that we had in the short time that we have that highlight aspects of what I think were his incredibly unique and powerful and impactful influence and contribution. In the year 2000, 20 and a half years ago or so, Rabbi Sachs was the first Jew ever invited to give a special, very famous lecture that was given annually in front of the royal family and other distinguished guests at Windsor Castle, which is the world's oldest inhabited castle. Rabbi Sachs describes, you can find this in the first essay in his Haggadah, he describes the challenge that he felt as he was preparing to speak and choosing what he would give over during that moment. After all, he obviously needed to be respectful, but at the same time, he wanted to pay homage to the history of British and English Jewry, which is not exactly 100% pretty. The first blood libel in history, Norwich 1144, the York Massacre of 1190, expulsion in 1290, and Rabbi Sachs was trying to figure out how he could acknowledge that and at the same time be respectful of the royal family sitting there at Windsor Castle. And he begins the speech by speculating what it must be like to be a royal, what it must be like to inherit this castle, with its history going back to William the Conqueror, King Arthur's Round Table. Growing up, he says, I have no doubt you must have learned the history, and for you, learning the history of this castle was more than just discovering facts, because you had inherited this building. It wasn't just history, 
It was becoming your story, your history. You didn't choose it. He says that if this would be me, I'd be thinking, I didn't choose this as my history. It chose me because I inherited it. Now I have certain obligations. I'm morally bound. He said, I would feel if I was you to pass on that story and to pass on that legacy. Jews, continued Rabbi Sachs, will never own a building like Windsor Castle. But we own something, he said, which is in its own way no less majestic and more consecrated in time. The Jewish castle is built not of bricks and stone, but of words. It too has been preserved lovingly for centuries, preserved and given over from one generation to the next, cherished and sustained from father to son and from father to son. As a child, said Rabbi Sachs, I knew that one day I'd grow up to inherit that Jewish story from my parents and by so doing become obligated to transmit those words, that story, to my children. It's not a building, he said, but nonetheless, it is a place to live. More than it belongs to us, we belong to it. What we have is not something which is a physical construction, but we have something else. We have something more. Our castle is the Jewish story. As parents, he went on to describe, this is our sacred obligation at Pesach. The story of the slaves and becoming free, the journey towards the promised land. Though at times throughout our very difficult journey in circuitous history, it has sometimes seemed out of reach, but we never gave up. And turning towards his distinguished guests, including members of that royal family, he said, I too, am part of that story, I'm part of that journey. It's my legacy, and it defines who I am. Just as the heirs to this castle, I too am a link in the chain of generations, and I own a a duty and a loyalty to the past and to the future. I still remember the first time I read that speech. I was blown away. First of all, just the diplomacy, the ability to negotiate and to balance being respectful and paying homage to the royal family and paying tribute to Jewish life and experience. But more importantly, was his image of the Mesorah, a castle of words. What a stunning and unforgettable image. What I'd like to suggest, thinking about his passing, is that more broadly, it wasn't just a beautiful image that he conjured up to describe what Masora is, but in and of itself is a significant part of his greatness. It wasn't just, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with some of his writings, you've seen his speeches, it wasn't just the brilliant and creative ideas But the language, which was so fluid, 
so masterful, the ability to turn a phrase, to paint a picture, to capture the imagination, is just breathtaking. When President Kennedy awarded Winston Churchill with an honorary American citizenship in 1963, he summed up Churchill's wartime speeches with the unforgettable description, he, meaning Churchill, he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. I believe the same can be said for Rabbi Sachs. He mobilized the English language and he sent it into battle for the hearts and minds of Jews living in the modern world. Every article, every Dvar Torah, every speech, every interview off the cuff was a castle of beautiful words. Number two. A second point I think can be made about the impact that he had was a story that he liked to quote. I found it in at least two different places where he quoted this story in different components. And it describes after the fall of the Soviet Union when Chabad Rabbanim started making their way to the former Soviet Union. One of them, one of the shluchim, recounted to Rabbi Sachs how a, a woman, a very modern-looking Russian woman, had come over to the rabbi and was lamenting and complaining and crushing about all sorts of people who more or less knew she was Jewish on some level for a long time, but now, whenever she walks down the street, they scream derisively at her, Zhid, as an insult to her being a Jew. And she was heartbroken over this. And the rabbi told Rabbi Sachs what he told this woman. The Chabad rabbi said to her, you know, if you wouldn't tell me that you're Jewish, just looking at you as if I was someone on the street and you walked by, there's no way to be able to tell that you're Jewish. And yet me, with my yarmulke, with my hat, with my beard, I walk down the street, the same streets as you all the time, and no one ever screams Jid at me. Why do you think that is? Why are they screaming it at you, but not at me, who's so much more obviously Jewish? The woman had no idea. So the rabbi, the Chabad Rav, told the woman as follows. He says, the, the reason is, because they scream at you, because they know you'll be embarrassed. They don't scream at me because they know I'll take it as a compliment. When reflecting on this story, Rabbi Sachs made the following powerful and I believe profoundly true point. Non-Jews, he said, respect Jews who respect their Judaism. And non-Jews are embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by their Judaism. This is not just a, I think, an insightfully true point. I also think it is so relevant to Rabbi Sachs as to almost be autobiographical. As Ellie alluded to before, or Tabori just mentioned, and I'm sure Gavriel will mention as well, because you can't not mention this when you speak about Rabbi Sachs. Perhaps his greatest accomplishment was that he was an unending and unbelievable source of pride 
for the Jewish people. I'm sure, no doubt, mostly for British Jewry, but he wasn't just theirs. British Jewry gave birth to him, but he then became a child of world Jewry, and he became the pride of every Jew throughout the world. Somebody who looked like him, and there's no question he did it deliberately. I don't, didn't see this in an interview, but I have no doubt. He wore a big black velvet yarmulke deliberately. It was going to be one of those yarmulkes that whenever you interviewed, no matter where you were, you would know he was wearing a yarmulke. He was proud of it. The big yarmulke, the beard. And yet, at the same time, so dignified, so articulate, he truly was a singular source of pride for Jews all around the world. He was proud to be an Orthodox Jew. He was proud to be an Orthodox rabbi, and in so doing, he brought all of us so much pride. Number three. Rabbi Sachs, a recurring theme in many of the published Divrei Torah, certainly the ones in Sefer Shmos, but you find it throughout, is his unbelievably emphasis and his articulate advocacy for the importance of Talmud Torah and Jewish education. Not only for the youth of the UK, but also for ongoing learning for adults. I want to share with you a particular Dvar Torah. It's really amazing. Again, you'll find fragments of this in different parts of his published writings. If you want one place to go, you can go to Covenant and Conversation in Parsha's Bow, 5767, but you can find it in other places as well, complementing, I'm putting a few things together. And he describes the speech that Moshe Rabbeinu gives the Jewish people shortly before they leave Mitzrayim. It's the moment they were waiting for. After 210 years, they were slaves, finally about to go free. And Moshe gathers the people to address them. And the question is, what would he speak about? What would he tell them? What would his speech be at this fateful juncture? Now we can imagine many topics, theoretically, that would have been totally appropriate for such a moment and for such a speech. He could have spoken to them about freedom and the end of slavery, he could have spoken about the destination of where they're going, the land of Eretz Yisrael, the challenges of the journey. All of those would have been appropriate topics and no doubt made a great speech. But none of those is what Moshe Rabbeinu spoke about. Instead, Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about children. He speaks not about the present, but about the distant future. And the duty to pass on memory of what they were experiencing, to generations yet unborn. Three times, we're familiar with all these psukim, but this, to, have, to appreciate them in context, it's so powerful, once he points this observation out to us. Three times, in the immediate context of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Moshe says the following, Perek Yud Beis, V'hoye a little while later, the beginning of Parakut Gimel, Vihigarita Levincha, Bayamahulaymor, Bavorza Asashem Li, Mitzesimi Mitzrayim. And then just six Sukim later, still in Parakut Gimel, Bahayaki Shalcha Bincha, Machar Lamor, 
Mazos, Vamartela, Bachosagyad, Hutsianu Hashem, Mimitzrayim. Think about it. They were about to gain their freedom after 210 years of backbreaking and deadly servitude and slavery. And what is the message that Moses is giving them? Not that you're about to be free, not that you're about to go into your own land, not that you're some Amlechas Kohanim. The message he's giving them is you're about to become a nation of educators. And what the Torah is teaching us, said Rabbi Sachs with such beautiful and memorable and a memorable phrase, is that freedom is won not on the battlefield nor in the political arena, but in the human imagination and will. To defend a country, you need an army. But to defend a society, you need education. You need families and an educational system in which ideals are passed on from generation to next, never lost, never despaired, never obscured. At the dawn of our nation, when we are becoming an Am, the Jewish people become what kind of nation? A nation whose passion is education, whose citadels were the schools and yeshivas, and whose heroes will be the teachers. What greater description could we give about Rabbi Sachs himself? It's not just the practical impact, which I know, and our friends who are from the UK could tell us more about, the incredible impact he had, his legacy as a chief rabbi, on day school education in England, but that in so many ways, he became the educator of Am Yisrael. During his tenure, and as I mentioned, even more so after he retired from being chief rabbi, the weekly Divrei Torah, the incredible speeches, the seemingly endless, brilliant books, all written within three months start to finish, that was his MO, read and studied by thinking Jews and, yes, as was mentioned, non-Jews throughout the world. Incredible. I want to close by mentioning, if I can, two more, two more points that were very much on schedule. Shocking. A dear friend of mine, Rabbi Mark Wiles, who runs a very important cure of organization in Manhattan, has an annual memorial lecture in memory of his mother, the Ruth Wilds Memorial Lecture. And once he had Rabbi Sachs as the guest speaker. And I'll never forget a story that Rabbi Sachs told during that speech about Sir Moses Montefiore. was once asked by someone, it's hard to know without context of these speeches, it's like kind of a Gedolim story, sometimes you hear the the punchline is the answer. You kind of wonder which Nudnik asked the question to get the answer that we're Zohar to pass on from generation. So I don't know who asked Montefiore this question, but somebody asked him, how much Montefiore, the richest Jew, how much are you worth? To which Montefiore responded, some number of thousands of pounds. To which the Nudnik, you know, doubled down on his Nudnikness and said, you know, but I know that's not even close. You have much, much more. Why would you give me that number? So Montesquieu responded, he said to him, you didn't ask me how much I have. You asked me 
how much am I worth? And we're worth what we're willing to share with others. The number I gave you is the amount of tzedakah I gave this past year. That's how much I'm worth. And the message that Rabbi Sachs, again, in his inimitable way, was communicating during that lecture is yet again, as I've mentioned in my previous points, to me, in hindsight, so autobiographical in describing him. He shared so much. He wasn't a business tycoon, but he was a tycoon of the mind, a tycoon of the nefesh. And what Hashem had given him, what he worked so hard to amass, he gave it away as quickly as he could amass it. The number of ways, again, especially in the last 10 plus years, but even before that, the number of ways, the amount of Divrei Torah, again, always so high level, so polished, so thoughtful, in so many different venues, constantly, constantly sharing, enabled by the generosity of many of his wonderful supporters from England, but still, it's nice that they were willing to support him, but he had to have the content and the willingness to share. And he did. He walked away voluntarily from being the chief rabbi because he saw, which is an unbelievable thing to be able to see, that he could actually have an even greater impact by being a rabbi without a position. By having no position, he ended up having the greatest position and the greatest impact. And it was all based on his desire to share. And the more he shared, the more he was worth. To conclude, I want to mention an interview that he gave actually quite a while ago. He gave it right after he retired. But it's an interview that maybe even some of you saw. The end of it was making the rounds on social media last night and this morning. And it was an interview that he gave to Tablet Magazine right after he had retired. Very interesting and worthwhile interview to read, the whole thing. But at the end of the interview, the interviewer noted and he asked Rabbi Sachs directly that, and I don't know, maybe, maybe people in, in England knew this, I certainly did not know this until just recently, that apparently he had previously had two other bouts with cancer. Once when he was in his 30s, and once when he was in his 50s. And unfortunately, the one he didn't survive was the one that came back in his 70s. And the interviewer asked him a very good and I think legitimate and probing question, which is, given Rabbi Sachs the type of things he writes and speaks about as a rabbi and a thinker and a theologian, it's stunning that he's never even once incorporated his struggles with life and death his own health issues, into any of his writings. Many, many thinkers, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, many thinkers, Jewish, not Jewish, Orthodox, not Orthodox, if they've gone through and survived a life-threatening illness or experience that gives them certain insight and they want to reflect on that in various forms, in Ashkaf and Machshava, who would, if you would, I would have bet anything that of all people, Rabbi Sachs, if, if, if unfortunately he had to be sick and then he survived it, I would have imagined more than anyone he would have incorporated it. And he never, ever did, not even once. So that's a pretty good question, I think. And that's how the interview ends. The interviewer asks him, why not? So he says as follows. 
He said it's very simple. His father, who he spoke about a lot, always was a great Derech Eretz, but in every interview I heard him mention his father, he always points out his father is a very simple Jew, very spiritual and committed and believing Jew, but very limited education, very simple. And he said towards the end of his life, he suffered greatly. He went through five different operations. I think he was in his 80s at the time. Each one, you can only imagine, difficult operations at a very advanced age, weakening him terribly. And even though, as Rabbi Sachs says in this interview, again, that my father didn't have much of an education, but he knew how to say Tehillim. And I used to see him each time he would say another parak Tehillim, getting stronger and stronger. And he said, I observed from my father as if his mental attitude was, I am leaving this to Hashem. If he sees fit that it's now time for me to go, then it'll be time for me to go. And if he still needs me to do things here, he'll look after me. That was his father's attitude about each surgery. So describes Rabbi Sachs. We are very fortunate that Akarish Baruch Hu realized both 40 and 20 years ago that there was so much more for Rabbi Sachs to do and gave him each of those previous two times a refuah, another lease on life for him to be able to contribute and give us so much. We were beneficiaries of that. But unfortunately what brings us here today is how the interview ends in some sense. Because Rabbi Sachs, after describing his father's emuna, he then describes how that helped him and how he adopted the very same attitude in emuna in his previous bouts of sickness. On both occasions, says Rabbi Sachs, I felt as if, if this is the time that Hashem needs me up there, then thank you very much indeed for my time down here. I've enjoyed every day and I feel blessed. And if He wants me to stay here, if there's still work for me to do, then he'll give me a refuah. I put my trust in him, said Rabbi Sachs. There was no test of faith. I have nothing to write about. There was no great theological awakening when I was sick. There was no great test of faith. If he needs me up there, Hashem will take me up there. And if he still thinks I have what to do down here, he'll leave me down here. There was no test of faith, just a few simple moments as which to say, in his hand, I placed my soul. Said Rabbi Sachs, and this is how the interview ends. That was my thought. And since we say every day those very words in Adon Olam, I don't feel the need to write a book about it. It was for me not a theological dilemma at all. I had faith, said Sachs. Full stop. That's all. That's in quotes. I had faith. Full stop. So, two points to conclude. Number one is what you see here is something so inspiring. It's not unique to Rabbi Sachs, but so inspiring. And that is when you see somebody of such towering intellect who also possesses an Amun Pshuta. I remember when Rav Lichtenstein died, Numerous times I heard Rabbi Tarragon speak, mention different things about Rav Lichtenstein. It was one of the themes that Rabbi Tarragon always would emphasize when speaking about Rav Lichtenstein as well. And it's something that, you know, as Tamidim, he would always be encouraging us. You know, we're often very attracted to the sophisticated mind. But we have to be no less attracted to 
and followers of the simple and the pure heart, the Amunapshuta. Sometimes you have people with Amunapshuta without the mind, and plenty of times, unfortunately, you get people with the mind without the Amuna. But when you can combine those, the way Rabbi Sachs did, to see someone who was such a giant of intellect, I mean, just towering, I assume that if he had never spent one day in Torah, never one day as a rabbi, and had just been an academic, he would have been one of the greatest in the world in whatever field he chose. It's just mind-boggling. He just kind of shakes his arms and just, Makairis, I don't mean I don't kind of Makairis, but even the, you know, the Lemuri Chol Makairis, just is mind-boggling how much he knew. Brilliant. And with such a munapshuta, to say this about himself, he clearly wasn't boasting I think he might have been even in bad. I don't think he understood why people would even make a big deal about this, probably. He'd probably be laughing at me for stressing this. But I think I'm right to stress this. Because it's such a rare and inspiring combination to have such sophistication married to such serious but sincere and simple, yes, simple faith. That is the hallmark of a true gadol. Vesak spoke about his time down there or up here, up there, or down here. And all I can say to conclude is, we thank Rabbi Sachs for all that he gave us down here. And we pray, we daven with the same amuna, the same faith that Rabbi Sachs displayed. We daven to the Rabbanu Shalom that Rabbi Sachs' legacy and his teachings will continue to live on and to continue to inspire future generations. He is a Baruch.